Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay, the podcast where each week we do a conversational deep dive analysis into a film. Today, we are talking about The Incredibles, the 2004 film written and directed by Brad Bird. I'm joined by the Beyond the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, darling. <laughs> and Alex Cayetos. <laughs> Hi. Uh, okay, so before we jump into The Incredibles, uh, our Spotify question, our question for people listening on Spotify app is, what is your favorite Brad Bird film? The Incredibles, Incredibles 2, Ratatouille, Mission Impossible, Tomorrowland. Let us know um, what your favorite Brad, Brad Bird film is. Bad Bird. Um, bad, bad. <laughs> the enemy of Big Bird. <laughs> oh my God. Wow. All right. Sorry, Nemesis. listeners. We have to go write a screenplay real quick. Yeah, we'll sorry. be back next week. That was our episode. <laughs> so, yeah, The Incredibles uh, is a pretty incredible movie. Uh, it is very good on very many fronts. Uh, I like it a lot. I My story of watching it is I think I saw it pretty early on uh, after moving to Santa Cruz to go to college, I believe. And and I think I hadn't seen like a Pixar film in a theater in a long time. And I was a little bit like, oh, I'm going to go see an animated movie. Like, all right, sure, let's go do that. Uh, and then just being like, I remember being just swept away on this amazing journey. And it's just so funny and taut and clever. And the action is exciting. The characters are interesting. Like it's, it was just firing on all cylinders. I remember the audience being completely into it and like laughing at all the moments. And just one of those, one of those theater experiences where you feel like you're really like connected to everyone sitting in that room together. Uh, so yeah, so I remember really, really liking it, uh, rewatching it a lot, wondering for a very long time when they were going to make a sequel and what's taking them so long. And it took them 14 years and we don't have to talk about that right now. Um, but yeah, but like I, it's a good movie and I like it, uh, rewatching it. It was like, this is a little bit like James Bond meets like American beauty. Like there's like a lot of like. Yeah. Like midlife crisis <laughs> yeah. uh, mm, uh-huh. stuff that like when watching it the first time, I was much it was easier for me to identify with like the kids and like Violet and like, yeah, like I want to be a superhero and like life is hard and you're in high school. I was just in high school. It's OK. It'll get better. And now I watch it and I'm like, I identify so much more with the parents and yeah. uh-huh. the problems with aging and just all all of those things. Uh, so it's also great that this movie contains all of that. It's uh, commenting on like superhero films and superhero tropes while also like doing them and paying them off. And when you see the family all strike that pose, like you get to like, oh, this is really fun. So <laughs> this movie is just is uh, really good at all the things that it attempts to do, um, which is many and a lot. So I like The Incredibles. Brian, how do you feel about The Incredibles? <laughs> I love this movie very much. Um, I don't remember exactly when I saw it, but it was definitely in 0405, like very shortly after it had come out. Um, and I loved Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo leading up to this. So I was definitely just starting to understand like, oh, there's a studio who's making these movies. And I had seen the Toy Stories and Bugs Life, but it was only around this time where I was starting to kind of get like, oh, this is one group of people responsible for this, you know, uh, this oeuvre. Um, 
But my biggest uh, memory of The Incredibles is when I worked at Hollywood Video, which I've talked about before. And I think Trisha's response was, of course you did. Um, (laughs) (laughs) This was one of the movies we would put on all the time. It was this and Napoleon Dynamite. And (laughs) I can't remember what else. Because we had to like, you know, they had to be movies that were okay for random people to walk into the store. It's like if we watched X-Men, we had to know where the where the one PG-13 word was and, you know, cough loudly or something. But Incredibles, Napoleon Dynamite, very safe. Um, And we watched it all the time. And not only do we watch the movie, we watched the special features uh, on the DVD for this, which I owned and loved so much. Um, It had like the Jack-Jack attack where it's Kari Mm -hmm. babysitting Jack-Jack and just the funny, he's like floating through walls and stuff. It's all the like side story, basically, the the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern of of, uh, what's going on with Kari and Jack-Jack. But then it had um, like the audio profiles of all of the supers where it was just like a three minute audio clip of Craig T. Nelson or Holly Hunter or Sam Jackson, like, and, and all the other supers, like the, the random people that are mentioned in this movie, just like telling their origin story kind of in like the interview, like the interview process that the movie opens up with. And we listened to the Sam Jackson one so many times as Frozone because it just made us laugh so much. He's like, I was a kid and I was sitting outside and I had some Kool-Aid and I was just, I just wanted a popsicle. And I was just thinking, popsicle, popsicle. And then suddenly it was a popsicle. And I was like licking it. I was elated. And ever since then, I could just freeze things. <laughs> and it's just like, but it's like this movie feels so real and immersive. And you could tell just how much of that extra work they put into it. You yeah. know, they didn't have to do stuff like that, but they did. Uh, so I have very fond memories of watching this movie a bunch and had not seen it in quite a while. So rewatching it for this was really a joy. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Trisha, what about you? Yeah, this is my favorite Pixar movie. Like, and it's not even close. I love this movie so much. I've rewatched it so many times. I mean, it's an action movie and the action in it is really, really well done and really Mm -hmm. exciting and inventive and entertaining and like full of these like little smart, unexpected moments where the character's abilities like, you know, extend the rule of what they are and like what we've seen them do, but in a way that is like really clever and just really fun to watch. Um, Like, you know, the, the most classic example is seeing like Dash start running across water. Right. Which is like, we've Mm. never seen him do that, but then it's that gives you that little extra sparkly surprise moment when he can do it. I feel like that was the moment in the theater where I could just feel everyone just like swell with joy. (laughs) Yeah. As he was like, (laughs) Yeah. No, exactly. And I remember that, too, because I saw this in the theater. Um, and I remember the energy of everybody while we were watching it. And it, because it has such an incredible momentum. Like, when you when you go back and you look at just, like, a list of things that happened in this movie or just read the plot again, it's so much. Mm-hmm. Like, it covers so much ground. So much happens. And it feels almost live action in so many different ways where like animated movies by necessity have these like boundaries to them where like they can't go to a certain number of locations. They can't do things like this. They can't do things like that. Um, And this movie is like, you know, really pushed those boundaries out and out and, and kind of, um, I mean, true, well and truly blurred the lines of what like an action like live action movie would be like versus like an animated movie. And Pixar had never 
had main characters that were human beings before this time. Mm, like we'd right. never, mm. we had never seen computer animated human beings carrying a movie up until this point. It was like, it was toys or it was bugs, you know, or it was monsters, monsters fish. fish. Yeah, exactly. Um, and it was, it was really Brad Bird and the vision of, of his team that was like, we're going to kind of do a real live action, James Bondy superhero movie. Um, but we're going to, do it animated, you know, with, with uh, computer animation. And, um, it still holds up so well. Like I'm not, not saying that the characters look realistic, right. They, they have a very specific visual style to them, which I think is awesome. And, you know, this sort of like mid century looking, um, style to the design. Um, so it's not that it's like, photorealistic, but it's not trying to be. But I'm just saying in, in terms of the density of the plot, the scope of the plot, the stakes, um, the central characters, their flaws, their arcs, like it feels like it has the sort of uh, momentum and complications and um, yeah, themes too of a more sophisticated, almost live action, action movie. Um I adore it. Giacchino's score is amazing. Just like everything about it is like exactly to my taste. <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to live in the Incredibles ranch house. Like, why does it look like that? It's like one of the most amazing houses ever. Um, and like everything and emote, like just so all the supporting characters are so great. And it's exactly all just like, if I could have written an animated movie, I would have written exactly this one. I, I just love mm. it so much. Um, and, and, and of course, like all the, all the heart and all the family themes are just kind of like the icing on the cake where it, it subverts your expectations of like an action hero and like a bond type of thing. Right. Um, or it's like, actually, but it's like, what if, what if James Bond was a superhero actually and had powers also had family and they all had superpowers. Um, what an amazing premise for a movie and what like a perfect execution for it. I just can't speak highly enough of it. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Alex, what about you? <laughs> it's so interesting because my, I think my first experience of this movie is kind of an outlier in this group um, where, you know, I think, yeah, so this was like my senior year of high school when this came out. Um, and I loved, you know, the previous year or whenever it came out was uh, Finding Nemo. Uh, I love Finding Nemo. It was just you know, exactly what I thought of a Pixar movie, like like a perfect Pixar movie where it's, takes me to a magical world where it's really heartwarming and makes me want to cry and is like so beautiful. And I think there was like this vision I had of what a Pixar movie was. And this movie, when it opened with the kind of, what felt to me almost more like a DreamWorks-y feel mm. of we're kind of being like tongue in cheek, like is my microphone working? Like, mm -hmm. like it's like a fake like documentary about the people and like they're kind of like mostly messing up to show how like it's like a real documentary. And there was immediately this like warning sign of like, no, is this like, is this going in the direction of like a Shrek or like, mm. we're going to be like meta ironic. Like we're not going to be just ripping your heart out with like, you know, beautiful stories. Uh, we're going towards like the, yeah, the more DreamWorks-y kind of vibe. So I think I immediately went in with like red alert, like no Pixar, like don't get, give into the irony, into the meta. Um, and then I think I was also at the time in a in a reaction phase to like overly cutty 
overly uh, shot sequences. And and, you know, a couple of years later, Children of Men came out and was like, yeah, like long takes. That's <laughs> that's real cinema. And so I think I also was, you know, reacting to the action scenes. They're incredibly complex and so well staged and so like well envisioned, but they are so fast and like yeah. things happen so fast, like you almost can't process it. And, you know, people and objects are moving so quickly. It's insane. Watching it again now, I think it's freaking awesome. Like it, like, like the, the complete insane momentum of the movie is part of what is just like special about it. But I think at the time, yeah, I was in some perfect, like about to go to film school, kind of resisting certain types of, you know, elements that were popping up in this film that made me just be like, oh, man, like, yeah, that was good. And like, it was really entertaining and fun. But like, that wasn't like a Pixar movie, you know, that that gave me like the deep, like life affirming feels and, you know, the more elegant sense of filmmaking. That was like a chaotic, like, you know, other thing. Um Watching it now, uh, I I absolutely am with you guys and, and thought it was such a fun ride. So cool how adult it is and, and how adult a lot of the characters, you know, problems are. Yeah. And 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 also, yeah, I just I think it's almost like it, in some ways, maybe it was ahead of its time or was almost using a language that we feel more like in video games now. But uh, the action is remarkable in, in the like pure like out of control kinetic energy that is still somehow coherent. Um, it's not shaky cam with random cuts. Like it is like everything is precisely where it needs to be to tell this story, this action sequence. Um, it just goes incredibly fast <laughs> and things are moving incredibly fast. Uh, but, but it, part of that's, that's why it is so remarkable is just watching this movie that, that is like, like you said, Trisha, it feels like it could have been a live action movie, but they embraced the animation aspect to just do all these impossible things that would just be so expensive to do yeah. live action. They can do it all here. And it, it feels like Brad Bird really embraced the the chance that he had, which is to, to do the craziest live action action movie, but animated. So to, so the insane vision that he had could truly be rendered. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so watching it again, I loved it. I think it, it, for so long it, it sat as kind of like a lesser Pixar movie, a lesser Pixar movie in my mind because of that initial experience of it. It's like, oh, it's not, you know, it's not the Toy Story 3. It's not the Finding Nemo. It's not the, even the Ratatouille, you know, where like you know, of, of his films, that might be my favorite just because there's there's a certain just love and charm at the center of it. This one, I think, and now I watch this movie again and it does have a lot of heart and love in it as well but there is the coolness and the you know the kind of wink winkiness of it at times that i was ah no dreamworks mm. um not that dreamworks makes bad movies either dreamworks has made some great animated films Just that i love as well. <laughs> but no but 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 i go, I go to other right. animation studios for different kinds of animated yeah. movies and i was like worried that pixar was moving away from like breaking my heart movies. Um, never fear. They, they need to break my heart. Yeah. It, it's interesting real quick. Cause, cause yeah. I was looking at the filmography and, you know, we think of Pete doctor as being the one to sort of like turn Pixar into the, like, here are adults with adult problems, but in a family movie. Um, and, but it's like, when you look at it, it's like, 
Finding Nemo with by Andrew Stanton and Incredibles by Brad Bird kind of are the first ones to really do that, where like the protagonist is like a father. Monsters Inc., which is Pete Doctor's first, feel, feels like it's starting to kind of thread that needle a little. But then I think Finding Nemo and Incredibles were the first to go like here. We're going to really talk about real stuff. And not that the Toy Stories didn't, you know, but like these movies feel like they were kind of a turning point for Pixar and then cars was next. So, you know, then yeah. <laughs> a little bit of left turn before we got into it. Well, yeah, I mean, and just to kind of respond to that quickly, which is that in finding Nemo, one of the amazing slights of hand of that film is that both Nemo and his father have their own complete character arcs. Right. Um, and in fact, so does Dory, like finding Nemo is a masterclass in like, Every, so does like the fish in the tank with Nemo. Like it's like everybody has a <laughs> yeah. character arc in that movie, which is actually incredible. And we should talk about it someday. But this really is Mr. Incredible's story. And, right. and he is a family man. He is going through a midlife crisis. And like the things as you're pointing out, as both of you are pointing out, it's his problems are very adult, right? Where he feels like, He's past his prime and like not just the world doesn't care about him anymore, but that like he's let himself go and like he's not, you know, producing anything of value or helping anybody. And like he's kind of checked out of his family. And then when he like starts to do hero work again, there's like a is he cheating like low key? Mm, right. That's a like, lot of like infidelity. Is vibes. There no yeah. Sorry, what? And then, like, yeah, his his romance with you know um, Elastigirl like comes back into the picture, and um, there's yeah, it is very much like there are kids in this movie, and Violet has like a little arc of her own, right? So I'm not saying yeah. that like her it's that the movie abandons the other characters in service of Mr. Incredible's arc. It doesn't do that, but it certainly definitely is his movie, and sure. what he is dealing with is something I would be surprised if kids could relate to like his conclusion, you know, like I can't lose you. I'm not strong enough. Like what does that mean to like a 10 year old? Right. I don't know. Well, yeah, it's interesting not just to keep talking about the Pixar like filmography thing, but I feel like this was the movie that made me lean back into Pixar. And maybe for that reason of it was kind of aiming more adult facing where like, you know, a Bug's Life was fun. I love the original Toy Story. Toy Story 2 didn't work for me. We can talk about it one day. Monsters, Inc. was, like, good. I enjoyed it. Finding Nemo when I watched it the first time, I wasn't that into it either. So, like, The Incredibles, like, brought me back in to Pixar. But it is this really interesting thing of, like, watching it this time, I was like, is this a kid's movie? For all these reasons that we're, we're right. talking about. And there's, mm-hmm. like torture and killing people and like those elements but as we're talking about like very mature like themes uh and the things that it's like wrestling with and the things it's in conversation with are like you know james bond movies and like references that like you know you as a five-year-old wouldn't get and you know don't need to get in order to appreciate it but it was just interesting how it didn't seem worried about leaning into like this is for children Right. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. 
With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Yeah, it should also be noted that this was two years before Disney would fully encapsulate Pixar, you know, and it's really interesting. Like, fair play to Disney for not having any of their franchises feel like they took a hard left turn when they when they took over sure. everyone was just so worried about like oh it's gonna be so candy colored or whatever but in the same way you can look at captain america and he just be like he's murdering a lot of people and, or yeah. iron man and be like he's sleeping with a lot of people <laughs> like before <laughs> disney would take over um you have the same thing with with the incredibles which is again two years before the year of cars is when disney was taking over and you have yeah you have references to mall rats and die hard with the vengeance and james bond and as you said like mirage is seductive and they're basically doing like a an infidelity plot line, right. but with with you know Bob's sort of secret job as as the actual infidelity, um, and then you know you look at Pixar movies now, and it's like oh some of that's like Jack Jack's suit being just like obliterated in Edna's like little conveyor belt yeah. or whatever. It's just like a suit of a baby just having like fire thrown right. at it. Right. Just like little things you notice. We're like, yeah, they probably wouldn't do that today. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, so it's just very fascinating to look at sort of all of the Disney franchises pre and post Disney. And I'm glad they don't feel wildly different, but it is interesting to go. Uh, that's something they wouldn't do today. Well, and a little bit to, to you talked about the like actual death count in this movie, which is not yeah. zero. Um, <laughs> like they certainly they, they do skirt around some of the violence in in creative ways, right? Where it's like I'm gonna throw this guy over there, and he's probably fine, right? Like he throws his boss through like. <laughs> 12 walls and then we see him in traction he's like he's alive don't worry he's just in traction um it's a very violent thing right that mr incredible does but the movie skirts around some of it but you know as the after the midpoint when like they start actually fighting the bad guys um they do hang a lantern on it a little bit where Helen is talking to the kids and she's like hey you know the bad guys on saturday morning cartoons and like they you know these guys are not like those guys. They will absolutely kill you if they get the chance. Um, and just th- that little moment of like, hey, gloves are off now. Like, these are very bad guys. They will kill you. They won't show restraint because you're children. Um, and so when Dash is running on water and like the the like dudes in hovercrafts, are, I'm sorry, are they flying saucers? The flying saucers are chasing him and then they explode and you're like, that guy is dead. Um, and you're just kind of, and Dash is actually kind of laughing about it. You're just kind of like, well, that guy was trying to kill him. Mrs. Incredible told me that. So it's probably okay. But it, it's certainly, yeah, not would not fly probably in other other Disney films. Right. Yeah, it's kind of. You just called her Mrs. Incredible. (laughs) Sorry, Helen Parr, aka Elastigirl. They've got a few names. Everybody has a few names. Right. Right. Holly Hunter. Yeah. It is interesting that they they level it up like that, but but 
by doing it by saying like these are people that are totally willing to kill children so it's okay for them to die but like in order for that to happen in the movie you also have to have people that are like these are child killers and that was another thing that i was like that i don't i don't know that i would see that yeah uh, that's their main thing (laughs) right (laughs) yeah um Something you mentioned, though, that that first uh, early scene with the boss where Mr. Incredible, uh, yeah, is getting chewed out by his boss. I was hoping boss. we'd get to talk about this. It's, it's so I good. mean, it's so great in, in so many ways. And I was... Wallace Shawn for the oh, win. So good. <laughs> yeah, perfect. Um, but yeah, I was uh, struck by the, the shot selection yes. and the editing of it and how just, you know, kind of like you were saying a moment ago, Alex, like all of the action scenes are immaculate and insanely perfectly choreographed like within a frame and how the frame is moving and the timing of the things within that frame in a way that like made me really excited about uh ghost protocol when i heard brad bird was going to actually direct a live action thing and i love ghost protocol but afterwards i was like ah but you can't get the same kind of perfection that you can Mm. when you're doing the incredibles um but so that's absolutely there in the action scenes, but it's also absolutely there in every scene. And that scene with the boss is such a yeah great example of every moment where the camera is and the editing and the rhythm and the acceleration of all of that is working uh, in concert with performances and everything to tell the emotion of that moment 100%. Uh, and I just love that. And it, it also kind of sets up really intense moments of uh, editing throughout this movie yes. where like the one that sticks out the most to me is when Mr. Incredible discovers the big plan and he's running out of that room where he was looking at the computer and they're shooting these like sticky yep. balloons at him. And yeah. it's just like, brrr, like the editing pace increases until it's almost every frame is a cut to a new thing. And it's it's really intense from just a visual auditory experience way, again, in a, in a way that doesn't feel like this is a kid's movie where we're doing insane montage editing to create a frenzy. Um, but it's super effective. And and there's several moments like when the kids are coming on the plane with Helen uh-huh. and the rockets are coming. Like that's another moment where the editing is just so intense that it's it's relentless and it's Mm -hmm. you really feel the stress of those moments. Yes. Yeah. This, the stress is really important because I think, yeah, there's a different kind of kids movie where even when characters are in peril, they're not framed the way that like a a PG 13 action movie would frame peril. We're like, when those rockets are coming and Holly Hunter's performance and yes. the way she's like screaming at her kids to mm-hmm. like, like put up the forest field, do it now. Like it's not, we're not joking around. Right. Like we're going to die. Yeah. Which yeah, like, and she doesn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then we get, then we get the Holly Hunterist delivery ever when she goes, brace yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> but also that like that sequence, it's intense and it's like, oh, this is real. And then it's punctuated with a, also she can become a parachute. Right. And so like right. after all of that, it's like, boof. And then it's like a funny joke moment. And so it has all of those dynamics within it. Yeah. Which yeah, sums up the wild kind of range of this movie, which is like only possible once again if you're 
essentially doing an adult live action film animated. It's it's like you're 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 taking advantage of both those things fully, where you can have the live action intensity of you know a, a plane with my family and it is about to be hit by rockets, and also the only possible in animation gag of Elastigirl because you know, even like in a Marvel movie, like it would yeah. you couldn't get it to look right. You couldn't get. <laughs> Elastigirl to look okay in a live action context, but it can totally work in a Pixar movie. Yeah. So I think, the, and I, I actually really like how this, you know, they leaned into powers uh, and it's just visual images, characters, you know, the boss character, the teacher character, just using the medium to just amp up this, yeah, mid-century style and these caricatures of humans um, and and superpowers that that would maybe be less effective in a live action setting, you know. Just you have this medium, use it as much yes. as you can. Yes. And I, I just you can just feel Brad Bird. You know, I can just sense he's like, I want to make a big, crazy James Bond movie. I'm be, I'm being given this chance and this technology with Pixar to do it. Like I'm gonna make the hell out of it, and I'm gonna and I'm not gonna hold back because why hold back when you can do anything in this medium? Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's something I think uh, on our Inside Out podcast I brought up, which is a question I always ask of animated movies is why is it animated? And, Mm -hmm. you know, nine times out of 10, it's because they're monsters or toys or cars or whatever. Um, But but this being a live action movie, it's everything you're saying, which is like, you know, almost 20 years later, we still couldn't make this movie in live action. So, like, the only way you make this movie is an animation, even if the characters are humans and not something that you, you know, obviously would have to animate. But I love what you guys are highlighting there because I was really struck by the editing this time too, and the pacing of it and how, you know, again, drawing comparisons to, you know, other sort of more kid oriented movies um, and how filmmaking techniques, you know, can create their own kind of like safety net for you around like, what can happen within this world. And I was really struck by how in those moments of intense editing, the characters are also visiting really dark places. Um, And Mm -hmm. so like in the scene with the boss, uh, which I I just think is so masterful. Like I, I can't believe just the, like the bravado of including that scene early on and having it related to almost nothing else. Um, and like it itself, <laughs> it just, you could just break it down and study it shot for shot of like all the close-ups of like the boss's hands as he's like doing his things and uh, straightening his pencils uh-huh. and tapping uh-huh. his foot. And he's like, you know, um, like come over here now and those things. Uh, wow. Sean's amazing. But um we the darkness of where Mr. Incredible goes in that scene where we see that he's absolutely losing his grip like on his temper essentially but it's so much more than that right it goes straight to the heart of like I'm not allowed to be who I am and instead I'm being like choked and stifled by this like bureaucratic nonsense of this like stupid corporate job um it almost has this like fight club quality to it right yeah i was thinking, mm-hmm. yeah, I was thinking yeah. about it this time too where it's like the you know this was like the 
era of movies about like office drones wanting to yeah. like Matrix shoot all their coworkers. Yeah. Basically, uh-huh. um, yeah, exactly. It, it it is tapping into that like level of darkness and yeah, American Beauty type dissatisfaction um, with his job, and then the same thing too with like the scene where his family is in danger and the editing picks up and goes, you know, faster, faster, faster. And that's again, Mr. Incredible going to this really deep, dark place um, Mm -hmm. where he's listening in as that entire thing is happening. And the, the missiles are zooming and she says, there are children aboard. Like, and he just screams like, no. And it's, you've got that really tight close up on his eyes. The character Mm -hmm. journeys don't feel like flattened or simplified right they feel like very um they have a lot of range and that's like high highs and humor um and then also a lot of heart but also some really dark depths yeah um to the to the where these adult characters are sort of forced to visit the, the moment that always strikes me is when um you know, Helen starts to suspect something is going on with Bob, and then he's in the garage about yeah. to leave, and he says, "Right," and she's just like, "I love you, honey, so much," you know. And it's like you, <laughs> yeah, you don't put that, you don't get a lot of movies like this that would include that moment, and, it, and that moment right. speaks volumes. Even just the parents fighting near the beginning, right, where like they're they are having a real fight while they mm-hmm. think the kids are asleep. And of course, you know, it turns out the kids are awake and everything. Um, but it makes that moment when Violet says like, mom and dad's lives are in danger or worse, their marriage. <laughs> like mm-hmm. it makes that moment funny. It's still really funny, but it, it the the movie does enough work before that point to convince us that maybe their relationship is in jeopardy. Like, and that, that a family like, could be in danger of splitting up in like a Disney movie is not something I think we get very much of in terms of like seeing a real fight between adult parents on screen. And we do actually see Mr. Incredible like flirting with Mirage like in their first Mm -hmm. like introductory kind of dinner at the base or whatever. You know, it's I was like, I wrote down like, whoa, this is a Pixar movie about a married man like flirting with another woman. Like, wow, interesting. Um, but speaking of the base, like the just the tropical island James Bond base, I just love how unnecessarily absurdly extravagant and ridiculous <laughs> everything is there. You know, yes. like like we we come into this place underwater for some reason and then we come into the, you know, the deck and it drains the water out or for some reason behind a giant waterfall that needs to be split apart is is how we enter this area uh and it a just waterfall of lava also <laughs> oh right yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Well, well there's different there's two waterfalls there's a waterfall right. of water yes. that's hiding something and also yes a giant waterfall of lava that opens like the you know the red sea <laughs> we can walk <laughs> through the middle of it um but yeah, I, I just I think that's also one of the great pleasures of animation is just getting to, as a as an audience member to get to just see and experience the most extravagant, outlandish, mm. wonderful vistas and uh, you know James Bond movie on steroids. Uh, and I just I just love Brad Bird for kind of indulging his inner child in this movie. Yeah. You can just feel like, what is the awesomest bad guy base? What are all of the awesomest things it would have? It would have a giant wall of lava 
that is a doorway that opens, of course, and it would have a monorail system that is super cool that goes super fast. <laughs> so it's just like I just love all the kind of yeah the retro Bond stuff turned up to eleven, mm-hmm. uh, right. and it's just so it just what a joy. And I'll quickly credit uh, The Simpsons um, for part of this shaping of Brad Bird, which he was an executive consultant mm. on for almost 10 years, I think, and and directed a couple episodes, um, speaking of monorails. Um, but uh, he, you know, that was a show where it was like, let's do the craziest thing we can think of. But also we're going to do an episode where like you believe Homer and Marge might get a divorce by the end of this episode. And then we are going to like do some real work on this relationship to like bring them together. And that ultimately kind of is what Pixar feels like, right? Is it feels like we are going to be lavish and extreme and have a lot of fun, but also we are going to actually do these like real heartfelt, thoughtful adult storylines and we're going to make it work in a way that is always, always very impressive. Yes. Yeah. If I can put my like nerdy like structure hat on for a minute, yeah. Uh, the, the midpoint in this uh, movie is great, and it unlocks like maybe one of the best like second halves of Act Two I can think of. But so the midpoint, you're getting like double revelations happening, where it's uh, Mister Incredible discovering the villain's real plan like what's really right. happening and mm-hmm. in, in that intense moment that we talked about and it's being intercut with helen learning that her husband's keeping secrets and what's really mm-hmm. happening there which we've also talked about those two things beautiful yeah it right is. it's cross-cutting between both of them and it's like yeah it's just it's it's doing two midpoints at once that are like empowering each other and it's just really really great uh and then yeah, the, the second half of Act 2, where the story goes from there, is a lot of what I think of when I think of this movie. But so much happens in the first half of the movie that's also great. That right. I, you know, as soon as I start watching, I'm like, all right, this and this and this. But then having the second half be uh, the family coming to the island, and it's, you know, there's uh, the stakes are high, but it's, really fun also and it gets to be kind of like helen's story and the kids story for a little bit mr incredible's kind of locked up and so you're getting to see them move their character arcs forward and then it climaxing with the the family as a four fighting together it's just like it's just so much fun and it's yeah. such a great progression and like leveling up of something that was already super fun and engaging and it just organically like flows from one thing to the other. And it's just super impressive. So to the point where like the third act, I always remember as being like a little bit of a, a downer because the second half of act two is just so fun. Right. Uh, but I think it all like works well. And, and is that for a reason? I was going to say, I think it really helps. This movie is almost two hours yeah, because you do feel like you need there, like you said, Trisha, there's so much in this movie. So much happens. We go to so many places. And and you're right, Michael. The first half of the movie does feel very distinct from the second half. Uh, like, I, I did also forget how much is not on the island and how actually the kids aren't even that present for long stretches of the, of the first half where it's just about kind of the marriage and the midlife crisis. Uh, and I, I'm just so happy that this movie is almost two hours and not kind of crunched down into 90 minutes because it allows it to have all these different like big sequences that that feel distinct 
and and I, even the, the the finale i agree with you michael I, I kind of always forget about the third act and there's another whole set piece in the city um but watching it this time where i was just having such a great time it's almost just like you get another scoop of ice cream you know more ice cream like just it's, it's another beautifully perfectly put together action scene you didn't even need it but why not we're gonna we're gonna top it all off with this perfect new setting you know it, it's, it's expensive they've already done all this action in this one setting of like this forest island we're going to do another big set piece in a, a city setting which is a whole different kind of set like thinking about animation this movie is not cheap <laughs> like this is a very expensive movie for for disney pixar to make uh and i'm just i'm happy that they went for it and i, I know there were things in this movie that were pushing the boundaries of what cg could do at the time especially things like um violet's hair yeah, yeah. i you know, it was like revolutionary that she had these like hair strands that were interacting with each other and moving uh realistically so it's just it's crazy and cool that uh like this movie even happened and and then came together the way it did because it was it was pushing so many boundaries and yeah it was going beyond the scope i think of your average like animated kids movie uh would dare to go and i think the thing that makes the second half um, of the second act and what you're talking about, Michael, where the, the four members of the family come together and they're fighting it together is that, that it makes it feel like a magic trick because each one of those characters has a journey that led them to that moment. And then that moment is a culmination for every single one of those characters. Um, and that is really hard to do well, like to balance out the first half of the movie. So as you're pointing out, there are scenes in the Alex, there are scenes in the first half of the movie that the kids are not in for like a lot. Like thinking about that entire sequence where Mr. Incredible and Frozone are like, they go, they're listening to the, you know, police scanner and then they like go into the building that's on fire. And then it's a great little sequence where they like save the people from the burning building, but then they're in a jewelry store. And then the cops are like somehow thinking they're robbing the jewelry store because they're wearing ski masks. And um, it's, it's a great little mini sequence, but the kids are not in that at all. Um, and then there's, you know, all these, the, the fight between um, the parents, as I mentioned. Uh, but the payoff at the end wouldn't be the cathartic or like triumphant feeling that we have if we didn't also have these moments with the kids in the first act. And so mm -hmm. we see that Violet has a crush on this kid in her class and uh, literally is invisible to him. Um, <laughs> uh, and then I love how Brad Bird was just like, let me think of the most on the nose powers for these characters to be. He, the dad's yes. trying to be like a typically masculine strong man. Okay. His power is strength. The mom's trying to do it all and have it all. Her power is stretchiness. <laughs> like the girl's an adolescent. <laughs> she feels invisible. This is just a high energy child. Make him run. Like, <laughs> Right. <laughs> basically but it, it does work no it's mm -hmm. so effective uh and uh but yeah it, there's there's care taken with the character beats in the first act and like the whole scene with dash where he's called into the principal's office and like he you know is acting out because he can't let you know release his energy in a healthy way because he's not allowed to go out for sports or whatever um and it is, I think, the mirror of the scene that you're talking about where they are all reunited and then they're all fighting as a unit. The mirror of that scene, the broken scene, is at the dinner table 
right? Where all their powers are running amok and they're using their powers to fight each other instead of mm -hmm. using their powers to work together and fight out against like the bad guys. And so the scene at the dinner table is brilliant and fun and funny as we see the different, like the, you know, the moms like trying to keep the kids apart, but then they like go under the table. And so her arms are all stretched out and Jack Jack's like, you know, laughing and throwing food. And then like the dad lifts the table all the way up. Um, <laughs> Anyway, I always think about Holly Hunter's life. She's like, it's time to intervene. <laughs> He's like, I'm intervening. I'm intervening. <laughs> um, or it's time to engage, right? Yeah. But uh, it, that scene creates like a perfect, like, here's the broken, what the broken family looks like that's fighting itself. And mm -hmm. then we get the payoff for each of those little journeys and the payoff for who they are as a unit when we see them. Yeah, I'll strike that pose when the like flying saucers come to get them in the, at the end of the second act. So um, what magnificent script writing in addition to everything else. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I mean, it's doing the, you know, we've talked about before, Jaws and Jurassic Park and the Avengers and the Incredibles. It's like, you're going to get the thing, but you're not going to get it until the midpoint or possibly even later. And it's just going to, it's going to be so much more rewarding when you finally get to it than if we were like, we're going to start with a whole bunch of this thing. And then it's like, right. well, now I'm just bored by the end of it. Um, yep. But I love, I love movies that have the restraint to just by the time you get to like that shot of the family together, you were so excited for it. Yeah. Yeah, they, you know, thinking about those early scenes that you're mentioning, Trisha, where they take care, introducing each character and what they have going on. Part of the kind of dramatic tension is that, you know, these are superheroes. And so it's a little bit like waiting to see mm -hmm. like what their power is. So like with uh, the son character, you know, he's called into detention. It's like the slow reveal of like his his teacher sat on attack and thinks it's up to how could that be possible like look at the tape he doesn't seem so it's right. like slowly revealing you know their superpower which is like a fun thing but also being like a character moment and so it's doing all these things at once and each one of those scenes has like a, a full arc like any good scene should have and like even the i was thinking about when uh Elastigirl is infiltrating the base. There's that great like set oh, piece where she's so like good. with the doors that keep yep. like trapping her. So half of her is stuck there and then she stretches mm -hmm. across to like get the key card and then the, she's trapped in that door and just the way all of that plays out is it's just like masterful design and pacing structure wise. It's funny how it all wraps up. It's action. It's like genre-y but against Alex your point taken to an extreme that only animation can do it's just like all of it happening all at once and it's just so good like there's nothing that it's, it's just so delightful and how it's all done I love when she grabs that guard's face and like just kind of like oh, here it is and then boom <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah Incredibles Incredibles good movie yeah also 
before we get to lessons, yeah. the biggest lesson of all is there is nothing better than a villain named Bomb Voyage, who's <laughs> a French guy with bombs. <laughs> And then when he sees Mr. Credibly, he says, Non Sean Crabbe! Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Genius. It All is right. pretty good. I mean, yeah, there's that whole opening that we didn't even talk about that's like also amazing right. and, and gets you up to speed and just study the Incredibles. Um, yeah, also, also before we go into lessons, uh, next week our episode will be talking about uh, the wonderful volleyball playing field top gun um in preparation <laughs> yes. for top gun maverick which i am super excited about <laughs> all i want to do is be in an imax theater and watch tom cruise fly f-15s with imax or cameras strapped to them and um so i guess we can watch the first one to see if there's you know story and stuff sure. it's gonna matter yeah <laughs> Um, <laughs> the old Top Gun, as right. the kids are going to call it. Um, I am really excited to revisit it, actually, because I watched it a lot as a so kid. So good. Uh, but yeah, I haven't watched it as an adult, and I'm I'm excited about it. Um, so anyway, so next week, Top Gun. But first, lessons we're going to take away from The Incredibles. Alex, why don't you start us off? Well, I was going to talk about that stretchy ah, sorry. gag scene. Sorry. You know, I think it's just it's, it's such a great example of... You got to pay off, you yes. know, if you're going to set up powers for characters in a movie like this, you got to take it to its limit. You got to pay it off with a scene where, like, how far can she stretch? Like, is is this too much? Like, where does it end? And like, how like how can this be a bind that only she can get out of with her power? Um, so, yeah, it's just, I think it's just a great example of that kind of a sequence that pays off just something that's been set up earlier in the film to, to, and pushing it, you know, stretching it <laughs> yeah. as far as it can go. Um, but Michael, you mentioned the opening, you know, the kind of, the kind of opening sequence that, that culminates with essentially like, uh, like a newsreel about like litigiousness <laughs> or like ruining superheroes. And I think that is where the movie, you know, once again, my, like my high school senior self, uh, you know, when the movie started with the like the fall, the faux documentary stuff was like, I don't like this. But uh, watching watching this movie now and watching how that sequence ends with the the newsreel and the whole idea of like superheroes being taken down, not because of some movie ish, you know, bad guy thing or like even the government shutting them down for kind of more generic reasons, but because people who are saved, like didn't want to be saved and are like suing the superheroes or suing them for like externalities of their saving people is just it's such a brilliant. And once again, very adult approach to kind of this like comedic situation of, uh, we got to take down the superheroes somehow society has to reject them. Uh, this is almost like a very ironic, but also very real and a very American way mm -hmm. to do it. <laughs> like it's through like too much, too many lawsuits. <laughs> so we, we have to shut down this whole thing. Um, so yeah, I just think it's, it was a brilliant idea to, to have to build in early on to the movie. It's almost like a tone and theme and style uh, move to make where it's not. Yeah. Some, some kryptonite came down and made them lose their powers or, you know, a new president was elected and he was anti-superhero. X-Men protesters shut them down. No, it was 
these people who were saved didn't want to be saved and are pissed about it. Um, just a really brilliant, unexpected twist early on that makes you realize this is not going to be, yeah, like a simple kids movie, but rather a very adult, uh, adult movie with adult sensibilities uh, that you may not even appreciate at all as a kid until later. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a really good point about like setting the tone and like the, the kind of humor like there will be physical, yes. crazy, stretchy humor, but there will also be this kind of like witty, sharp, uh, yeah, more mature humor. And all of that's going to be layered on top of each other. And setting that that tonal expectation is is very important. And even like the government bureaucrat that comes and has to like relocate him yeah. and, and comes mm-hmm. and he's like, come on, man, like this is so much paperwork to do. Like it's just it feels very much like grounded in. Yeah, like a corporate and government bureaucracy okay. in a way that is really honest i feel like i know that guy like he <laughs> like like you know walks on screen and i'm like oh it's you i don't know it's tommy lee jones <laughs> i mean it's not but it looks it's like tommy lee jones, jones. Yeah. <laughs> or like it's that architect Leo from yeah. like the west wing kind of a little bit of just yeah, like yeah, the yeah. weather but i don't know yeah. getting the job done but also like i'm too old for this yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Voiced by Jonathan Banks in the second movie, because the second movie was like, what if we got all of the cast of Better Call Saul in this movie? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, cool. Okay, Uh, Trisha. Well, so what Alex is saying here reminds me of what my lesson is, which kind of has to do with the promise of the premise, Um, which is a phrase that we say a lot, but I'm going to use it here to kind of mean like, a well thought out premise where the implications of the premise are thoroughly explored. Um, Mm. So we talked about the world feeling like built out and lived in and dimensional um, and, you know, not necessarily like our, again, it's not grounded in our reality. It is its own reality. It's this kind of time out of place. Sixties question mark thing. Um, But which the second movie really messes with because then the second movie is like, we have tiny cameras everywhere and it's the internet. And you're like, what? Um, Wait, what? Second movie. I haven't seen that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Setting that over there for now. But like it it is its own reality, but it's a reality that feels like it follows an internal logic and fully explores the different implications of the premise. So the very fact that Syndrome, the bad guy in this movie, is someone from Mr. Incredible's past who, like, had a, you know, social, parasocial relationship with superheroes as a child um, and, like, admired this person and then, like, felt disillusioned. There's there's a backstory that feels, like, again, earned and dimensional and logical for the world. If superheroes really existed and if they had a public outward facing persona such that they had fan clubs, then it stands to reason that some fans maybe were disillusioned by them at a certain point um, Mm -hmm. and or perhaps even developed grudges against them at a certain point. The same thing with Edna. Like if superheroes were real, then someone has to make their costumes <laughs> right. and clothes. And like, um, there's an, again, it's not our reality. Her clothes are made of magic materials that do not exist and could not ever exist. But the internal logic of the world is thoroughly explored 
by cr the creation of that character, right? Where there is a designer who designed a lot of these superhero suits. And I think it's also really interesting that, um, you know, we, we are like absolutely utterly drowned in superheroes now, but like just the sheer number of them. Um, but within this world, uh, there's a sort of logic to how many people would be super, right? If they're like a portion of the population, then who would, how many would there be and who would they be? And um, the fact that there are plot points in this movie that hinge on like other supers that never really appear on screen, right? It's like there's Dyna Guy, there's Gazer Beam, there's like these other, whoever they were. Um, we hear them mentioned a few different times, right? And there are plot points that kind of hinge on them. Um, but again, it's the sort of like, it would have been easy when you're creating this world to be like, Mr. Incredible and Elastic Girl and Frozone. They were it. Like, you know, in the same way that the superheroes, when you're just like exploring one aspect of them, you kind of just stop when you have enough. But it's like this, no one when they were writing this movie decided to stop at a certain point. It feels like the people who made this movie sat in well, what is this world that we've created? What else would be in this world? What else is possible in this world? Or what would yeah. be the natural extension of these rules um, and of this premise it, to create a world that feels three-dimensional and explorable, right? Like we talked about the, num the sheer number of locations. This feels explorable because it feels like there are things beyond the boundaries of the frame. So when characters go see Edna Mode, you're like, yeah, that's a person that probably exists in this world because it feels like there are people like that in this world because we sh we see the sheer number of like there's bomb voyage there's like this you know petty thief over here that's snatching purses and even he gets a line at the beginning and like there's these people in the pews at the church where they're getting married and like there's just enough in it and it all feels fun and inventive and worth exploring and makes the world feel explorable and cool. Um, and I think the promise of the premise can mean that too. It doesn't necessarily mean like, and the characters are all going to fight bad guys together. It also means like there's going to be some great payoffs to the world that we've built. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And, and I think that again, that intro sequence does a lot of legwork there as you're pointing out to show us like this is this is the before times and this is what it was like and we are, we're only getting a glimpse of it right it's like one evening essentially right and the, the mm -hmm. lives of of them and it's the wedding night so it's doing all this like important character stuff yep. but it's also yeah showing you this is what the world was and then we're going to fast forward and so you have to kind of put two and two together but we've uh yeah set expectations and boundaries such that you can populate out from this family and through time in a way that as you're saying makes this all feel very well explored reminds me a little bit of the opening to Watchmen, Zack Snyder's Watchmen mm. like thinking about mm -hmm. it this time mm -hmm. of like oh you just like did the Incredibles thing but like darker and rainier <laughs> um, yeah it's also part of the adult payoff of sitting with the superheroes is that we see so many of them die yes. on screen mm -hmm. either their capes pulling them into like yeah, right. you know, it's <laughs> like airplanes yeah. or like just literally i was shocked this time watching like all the like 
dead, 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 like on the um, mm-hmm. you know, the evil guy's screen. He hides <laughs> under Gazer Beam's corpse, like in the cave yeah. at the bottom of the yeah, waterfall. Yeah, it's like, like, yikes. It's like so many people died in this movie. Wow. Yeah. Cool. All right. Uh, Brian, what's your lesson? Uh, yeah, you guys touched on a lot of it, but I was just thinking like, what a first act in general, yeah. um, you know, in starting with that opening sequence, which you mentioned a lot of, but it's like we're setting up all the characters, we're setting up their powers, we're setting up the relationships, you know, um, uh, Bob cares more about doing superhero stuff than his family, which like he's literally supposed to get married. He's like, I got time. Um, and then. We set up Buddy and, you know, we, he'll come into play later and all that stuff. And then also the nice little touch of seeing the cops being like, yeah, Mr. Incredible, you're great. Superheroes are great. Everything is great. Um, and then at the end of that sequence, wait, you didn't get the bad guy? Oh, well, I thought you were going to, you know, so now we start to see this doubt in the story world. And then as you were saying, Alex, now we cut to the the sort of, uh, how did you how did you phrase it? The litigious yeah Yeah. um (laughs) of it all where it's just uh where it's just like oh yeah they cause damage and like you know people don't want (laughs) them and everything so then it's like we absolutely understand the protagonist's desire because we just saw him on the best day of his life and then now we we see that taken away from him and he's in this boring office job you know i love the um uh, when he looks at the kid on the, the, the like tricycle kid, uh-huh. you know, and he's, he's like, what are you waiting for? I don't know. Something amazing, I guess. Me too, kid. Uh, you know, just like, you know, exactly what he wants. And then, and then we, you know, we introduce the kids powers and desires as you, as you guys were saying, sort of when they, they're thematically match what they're going through. But then this all culminates in something I think is really brilliant, which is the villain's plan, which of course we don't know is the villain's plan at this point is exactly what the protagonist wants. Like, generally speaking, you know, here's a protagonist, they have a flaw, they need a change, but they don't want to change. And then an antagonistic force, whether it's an actual antagonist or something, comes and forces them to change, right? And they don't want that, but they have to deal with it. And then that's how they go. That's how they go on their character arc. This is just someone handing to Bob in a silver platter. Here's everything you want. And him going like, oh, okay, <laughs> great. This is awesome. And then, um, you know, it, it may obviously, that's not what he wants once the the plan is revealed, but it it sort of has him walk straight into the antagonist trap by the villain's plan being the exact thing, exact thing that he wants. Um, and I just think that's really smart. And it's sort of like we as the audience are excited for him to go do what we find out later is walk into a trap basically um because it's because it's not the typical well here's here's the bad guy who shows up and is causing doing bad guy things it's no here's an opportunity for you a seductive Mm -hmm. literally seductive with mirage and the way that she had you know carries herself and everything opportunity for you um and uh and yeah i just think it's really really smart just a great first act and a great a great way to sort of get him tied into the antagonist plan yeah no it's true yeah we're we're very aligned with him and what he wants like we've we've understood that very very clearly uh such that it's yeah doing that that thing where it's like you know the theory the protagonist is like uh you know going deeper into their liar doing things that like aren't good but we're kind of rooting for them like we understand why they want this Mm -hmm. thing that they're like not supposed to have because it's fun in the filmmaking to watch him do all these things and for all this character work that gets set up as you're playing out we understand and empathize with that desire and it's 
Yeah, it's very well done. Yeah, What's my lesson, lesson is Michael? just the. So I was paying attention to the Vi character who I like was like kind of had a crush on the first time I watched it, and now that's like weird to me. <laughs> like that's a child, and I'm an old person. Anyway, um, <laughs> but like just her, like her arc is done very uh, efficiently, uh, and. So I was, yeah, kind of just like subplots and how to do them in a way where they're sort of ever present, but don't take up too much time, but still add emotion to everything. And so, because she kind of has these two supers, uh, superpowers, right? Where she can turn invisible, but she can also create force fields. And the force field, we get a little tease of during that crazy dinner scene where Dash is running around and running around and she creates a little mini force field and he hits it and he's like, hey, no force fields. Mm -hmm. But then we don't see it again until, uh, yeah, after the midpoint when they're on the plane, as we talked about, and then Holly Hunter is screaming at her to like, you need to make a force field around this plane. And so the escalation of, um, yeah, we, we feel the extremeness of, I have this power I've been told my whole life to never use it. Now I'm being asked to do it in an extreme life-saving moment, and I can't. Uh, that's very powerful. The next moment, she's uh, apologizing uh, about it. We see her trying and like trying to get better at it in a scene with Dash when he's talking about other stuff and there's other exposition happening. Uh, and so it's just kind of there, sometimes in the foreground, sometimes in the background, but enough to when she needs to jump in and save Dash's life and save the family, like in those big moments, it feels earned and emotional and like Mm -hmm. a turning point. And it just, it feels like it was done very effortlessly, which means that it had to be done very thoughtfully and very carefully Uh in order to pull off. Uh, And so I was just very much respecting that part of, of the narrative this time. Uh, Yeah. Cool. Good movie. Good movie. Yeah. Um, okay, that's a good, almost 20 year old movie. Yep. <sighs> so I'm getting old. I like I put on my super suit. I don't look the same in it anymore. It's, it's yep. <laughs> so. maybe she need a new super suit, Michael. There you go. Uh, I should call Edna, call Brad Bird. Um, <laughs> yeah. What else have you guys been watching? Brian, what have you been watching recently? Uh, I watched a British film called Boiling Point um, from last year, which is about a head chef um, trying to keep his fine dining restaurant afloat on a very busy, chaotic night. They're overbooked. There's a famous critic coming to check the place out. A celebrity chef who used to be the main character's partner is coming in. Uh, There's a marriage proposal happening, all this kind of stuff. Um, Very interesting movie from a plot and story standpoint, but the movie was shot in a single take, not just presented to Mm -hmm. be shot in a single take like Birdman or 1917 or Rope. One of the very few movies that was actually, actually, actually shot in a single take. Mm. Um, So it's, you know, 90, 100 minutes long, something like that. And it doesn't feel like a gimmick because that because the movie is chaotic and it takes place obviously in real time and like, oh, we have to get this thing, but what's happening over here? And we're following this character while this other character is doing something over here. And then we're coming back and we see what they've been up to. Um, and yeah, it does not feel like it is trying to 
show you how cool it's being by doing that. It just feels like this is the way this movie should be shot. So I really recommend it. It was a lot of fun to watch and really interesting. Um, if you watch a lot of British television or film, you'll recognize some of the faces. Uh, Stephen Graham, Vinette Robinson, Jason Fleming, like people where you see them be like, oh, that person. But I don't know them by name. Uh, and uh, yeah, check it out. Boiling Point. Interesting. That sounds like yeah. a really cool context to use that style. Like that all exactly. Yeah. yeah. Really works for me. An, an actual long take movie. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I gotta check that That's out. That's cool. Awesome. I think they were supposed to shoot eight shoot it eight times and then because of COVID and stuff, they ended up only being able to shoot it like three or something and they had to use one of those takes, but there's it doesn't feel like they had to use a bad take or anything. Wow. Wow. God, I'm it's so stressed out. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> Uh, awesome. Cool. Trisha, what have you been watching recently? Yeah, so Brian recently recommended Petite Maman, which is uh, Celine Siama's new movie, and I went to a movie theater to see it. Um, and nice. I don't know if it necessarily needs to be a big screen movie experience for anybody, um, <laughs> but I really enjoyed seeing it in that context. Um, and I just want to, you know, Brian already kind of shared with us the plot about it and everything, but I just really, really liked it. Um, and it, it's just a really great example of what you can do with just a little bit. Like, you don't have to have a huge cast. You don't have to have a lot of money. You don't have to have a lot of anything. Yeah, it's just a testament to when you're really, really, really good, you don't need very much. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I was I was kind of blown away by, like, it's only an hour and 12 minutes long, um, hmm. but it's, it's really engaging and beautifully made and, like... Um, you know, you can. I would just like like to look into the faces of these like young actresses all day. Um, mm -hmm. They're really great. So I saw that movie. Um, I strongly recommend it. And the other one I saw recently was Death on the Nile, um, and I would mm -hmm. love to talk to you guys about Death on the Nile because I think like we should talk about it like on the Discord or like off mic. But I, I just I watched it with my parents, and it's a whodunit, and it's a whodunit that. Like the knots in it are, um, it feels like there's a, it feels like there's a way that you could have done it differently, basically, <laughs> is what I'm gonna say about it. <laughs> like, it doesn't quite feel like it, it taps into, it doesn't all come together as neatly as like you kind of want from a whodunit at the very end when the reveal happens. Mm. Like, there's some messiness to it. Um, and and not not necessarily in the performances or or definitely not in the production and costume design. Those are like astounding. They're so beautiful. But it's in the it just it feels like in the construction of the script. Like it mm. feels like a very instructive script that you could like read and kind of get into and like maybe move the blocks around and see if there's like a way to like neaten it up. I don't know. It's really interesting to think about like maybe what the restraints were, but um, very interesting. Uh, Who done it? Movie. Um, Death on the Nile. That did I could you just, see? Like, pick apart for ages. Murder on the Orient Express. Yes, I did that one. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think Murder on the Orient Express for me was a little neater in its finale. Um, and and Death on the Nile was a little messier. So, but very both like. I'm glad we're in an era where we have more whodunits because it's one of my favorite genres. And so, and, and part of it might just be like an Agatha Christie problem, like. Agatha mm. Christie wrote like a hundred books. And so like not all of them are going to be like, not all of them can be. And then there were none is what I'm saying. So right. 
Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Cool. Okay. Alex, what about you? Uh, I started watching the second season of Russian Doll on Netflix, mm. uh, which, yeah, if you're a fan of the first season, so far I'm enjoying the second season. It, you know, the first season had the Groundhog Day uh, kind of conceit where same day over and over again. Um, and this season is kind of embracing a sort of a time travel adjacent conceit where there's a magical uh, subway stop or if you get in the train there, it, you end up in the 80s. Uh, so it's a lot of fun so far. Uh, it has the same kind of, yeah, like freaky supernatural vibes, but with Natasha Leone at the center being just this really wacky character, Nadia. Uh, so yeah, Russian Doll, if you like the first season, I think you're gonna like the second as far as I can tell. And I like time travel. So nice. Always, always a good thing for me. Very cool. I filled uh, one of the holes in my filmography and I watched The Conversation uh, by ah. Francis Ford Coppola, oh. which I had not seen before. Um, yeah, and it was really interesting. Uh, like also kind of mind blowing that it came out the same year as Godfather Part Two, I believe. It's like mm. 1974. It, like it feels like a indie movie that you would make a long time before you made the godfather the greatest film of all time or whatever right uh but that's what's kind of cool about it is that it does feel indie and and uh yeah just it's what it i appreciated this the the technical things that it did for like sound and how how important sound is to the movie. You know, it's about listening and listening to this conversation and kind of the uh, paranoia that stems from the sky. And, and uh, yeah, I don't need to tell people about what the conversation's about, but it, it was really interesting <laughs> to like finally watch it. And I've seen parts of it, but like watch it all the way through uh, and appreciate, yeah, just the sound design, the sound editing how the sound and the filmmaking adds to this feeling of paranoia. Very long 70s sequences where I'm like, does this party scene need to be a half hour or however long it's been? <laughs> mm -hmm. But it pays off and is there for a reason. And there's lots of fun twists and turns, uh, not the least of which Harrison Ford being in this movie a lot more than I was expecting him to be. Uh, yeah. So anyway, the conversation it's a good movie. I'm here to I'm here to report. Thanks, yep. Michael, for letting yep. us know. <laughs> well, I'm always there for you guys. Okay, cool. Well, this has been our conversation about the Incredibles. Incredible movie, The Incredibles. Uh, no. <laughs> da -da 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 -da. We are all of your death. Wow. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, yes, as we said um, earlier, next week will be Top Gun. I uh, want to say a big thank you to the patrons that make this show possible. Uh, if you want to help us make more episodes, uh, then head over to the Beyond the Screenplay Patreon. The link is in the show notes. want to say thank you to our producer, Vince Major, our editors, Caleb Berg, Graham Harther, and Eric Schneider. I'm Michael Tucker, and I've been joined today by Trisha Rand, Brian Bittner, and Alex Cayeros. All of our Twitter handles are in the show notes. Send us a tweet and say hi, and we will see you next week in the danger zone as we talk about <laughs> Top Gun. Yes. <laughs> bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. bye.